Amen. Thank you, worship team. We are, uh, this will be our second time in the uh, new series for the summer. We're looking through the Psalms, and uh, often we choose that in the summers because of the travel frequency. You can pop in and you'll be caught up because every Psalm, we'll try, we'll try to have a standalone topic. Uh, this week we're looking at a pretty popular Psalm, 42. You may be familiar with, as the deer pants, so my soul pants for you, O Lord, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. It's a song that many of you have sang before. And we're choosing psalms that are also not exceedingly long until I completely ruin that theory. Uh, on the fifth, the fifth and sixth sermon, we'll be looking at Psalm 119, which we won't do the entire thing, thankfully, but uh, we'll do portions of each on those weeks. But right now, we're choosing psalms that are manageable in one conversation. I would encourage you to have something in front of you. Yes, there will be words behind me, but throughout the discussion when I refer to it, it's just helpful. So you have Bibles in the back of the chairs, you have your device. Justin will try to do his best to maybe throw up the verses I'm referring to, but we can't promise those. Um, And just as we think about the Psalms, they are the inspired prayer and praise book of Israel. And not just for the Old Testament, but obviously the, the apostles and Jesus and the early church and on into today. The, the, the Psalms are a, a chief way to understand the truths of Scripture, but not abstractly. Right? We're able to come to the truths of Scripture, but in terms of human experience, uh, revealed through emotions and desires and sufferings. Uh, one, one concept that might, you might think of it is it's like the workshop of the Bible. You have theory, and then you have the lab work or workshops where you get into it. And so we're going to come alongside these writers of these Psalms, and through the inspiration of the Spirit, and through reading them, and studying them, and meditating on them, hopefully the goal would be our lives would become more and more meditative and following the, the mindset of the psalmists themselves. Uh, this morning's topic then, looking at Psalm 42, last week we did a Psalm of Orientation where in Psalm 16, where we find that this is like the real world now, like this is it, that the Lord is our refuge, and, and, the, and David sets the stage. Well, Psalm 42, we now have some rupture. There's a problem in our psalm, and we'll discuss that a little bit later, but, uh, and so the psalmist is actually uh, reorienting. They're, they're sort of disrupted and coming back to God and leading us in that path. So let's read together the words from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. 
as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are a God who is indeed worthy of our longing, of our panting, of our thirst. And you do quench our thirst through your spirit. But Lord, like the psalmist, we can recognize that we are in a valley as we long to be with you face to face. And Lord, there are times in this life that we feel closer to you and there are times where you feel more distant. But I pray that as we read this psalm and study it together, we will see how you are always uh, available that we would come and long for you and your desire is to quench our thirst. But Lord, we also need to be taught to name and express our longing to you. So I pray we would learn from this ancient path that you've given us in this psalm. In your name we pray, amen. A, uh, a ch- uh, one of the books we read to, I think all four of our children growing up at different ages, was Going on a Bear Hunt. Anyone know this book? It's one of my favorites uh, to read to the kiddos. Uh, I love the illustrations, but the theme is uh, it's an imaginative story because they're not probably really going on a bear hunt. They're in their pajamas and have blankets. But this family, the narrator tells us, is going on a bear hunt. And we're going to find, wait, how does it go? I just lost it. We're going to find a big one, and we're not scared. And then there's these iterations where the first thing that happens is they come to tall grass. And the, and the, narr- the girl, who's, the child who's telling us the story says, you know, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we're going to have to go through it. And then they go through, they come to the river, and they come to the snowstorm, and they come to the forest, and finally they come to the bear cave. But at each iteration, they come to a problem, and you can tell the desire would be to go around it or over it or another way, but what they realize is we have to go through it. And I think that we could learn a lot from that child's book, because as humans, and as Christians, which we're both, if we're in Christ, uh, you don't cease to be a human, by the way. We are escape artists. We are people who come to the problem, and I'm getting this term from Dan Allender in his book, The Healing Path, but we come to these problems in our lives, and we figure out, I'm going to go over it. I'm going to go under it. And almost never do we look forward or exercise the discipline of going through it. And yet the scriptures are very clear that this is where growth actually happens. I mean, one of our favorite psalms is, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He guides me, you know, green pastures and still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's not occasionally when there is a valley. Every now and then if this problem arises, David is saying this is life, this side of heaven. And yet walking with God is not avoiding the valley but it's going through the valley, knowing that you're in Christ. And so I believe this psalm is helping us understand that concept because it's, it's leading us into this, like we're actually being drawn into the language of engaging God when oftentimes he seems so distant. And so the, the, the heart behind this psalm is longing and panting for God. And so what we're really gonna discuss this, this morning is how do we recapture that longing for God by going through the hard places? 
Because you're not going to recapture your longing for God by avoiding them. So that's what we're going to try to process this morning. And the first thing we'll look at is the, the need uh, to express our longing. Uh, the, the psalm begins, As the dear pants are flowing streams, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, oftentimes we come to psalms like this, and I've said this before, and you may be like, ah, I don't relate. That's not how my heart feels. And so let me just set the, st- the, the tone by saying, I don't know that everyone who's ever sung this song feels this way when they begin it. In fact, the most likely explanation for the writing of this psalm is after the exile, uh, Israel after Solomon, when his son uh, took over, the, the kingdoms uh, split apart between northern and southern kingdoms, as you know, and then over time, there were two different enemies that came in, Assyria and Babylon, taking the northern and the southern at separate times away. That's called the exile. And during the exile, what that means is the people that were taken away were separated from where they could worship, and it created this longing, at least it should have. However, it's also very likely that there were many people who decided, well, hey, we've been taken to this new place, and it's got this beautiful city, and looks like we're going to be here a while. Why don't we just fold right in, make this our home? And so it would seem likely that the need for a psalmist at that point would be to say, let me remind us of what we're missing. Let's create this, this need to go back to the Lord and long for him and name the struggles we have and not just get sucked into our current situation. In Jeremiah 6, which the prophets are all writing either warning of exile or comforting after exile, and many of them are writing on both sides of the exile. But Jeremiah says this in chapter 6. He talks about, he says, from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. And what do they do? They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So, when we come to this psalm, we come to it recognizing that there is no peace apart from Jesus. We, we need to remind ourselves of that, that our deceptive heart tries to tell us it's not that bad. And, and typically when we do that, we come to these problems and we go, I think I can come up with several solutions to this problem. I can go over it. I can go under it. I can go around it. And yet, that's peace when there is no peace, isn't it? Dan Allender says this in The Healing Path. He says, healing in this life is not the resolution of our past. It is the use of our past to draw us into a deeper relationship with God and his purposes for our lives. We need a new understanding of how to deal with past hurts, one that acknowledges the damage to the human spirit while charting a path toward the abundant life God promises. And that's exactly what we find in this psalm. Remember, by the way, everything's past. If the hurt was last week or last month or even yesterday, it's past. And when you find yourself hurting, what, what Allender is saying and what the psalm teaches is we are to cry out to God both for the healing from the wound but with a longing for redemption. Um, recently, I, I started reading a book. I'm going to just confess right now I've not completed the entire thing. But it's a good book. It's just hard. It's C.S. Lewis, Till We Have Faces. I'd actually heard the quote I'm going to use. I thought I ought to read that book before I use the quote, and this wasn't able to do it. So I got it on audio. I read some of it in real life, but I did rely a little bit on Wikipedia. 
Um, so till we have faces um, is a it's it's actually Lewis was not doing well, and his wife's like, why don't you write a book? And so he decides to write this one, and he takes a Greek myth and and he reworks it into what he considered his best book, but most people haven't read it. And the premise is it's really in two parts, and there's a, a, a female who is a queen of a foreign land who goes just, I'm just going to briefly, she goes through horrible turmoil, and throughout part one ends up complaining to the gods and just complaining the whole time. Part two, he would say, was her conversion. And she realized something that she had not quite gotten to her core issue. And here's the quote. She says, the time will come when you at last utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years. And she says, I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly. Her complaint from part one was, they're not speaking to me. And she says, I saw well why they would not do that. How can they meet us face to face until we have faces? He was writing to a friend and explaining what was behind this, and he said, a human being must become real before it can expect to receive any message from God with its own voice expressing its actual desires. When you don't take your troubles to the Lord, you're not real. And I'm afraid for all of us that we tend to have what we do with God over here, and it doesn't often include crying out, lamenting, even complaining. We, we use our best manners for God. And then over here, in our real life, separate from this, we complain to people, we complain to other whatever, but over here with God, we're on our best behavior. It's completely backwards. And this psalmist is showing that. Our, we should go to God with every one of our hurts and bringing that understanding that the deep hurts that we feel have a deeper longings underneath them. Whatever you're struggling with, there's something deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you find that core depth and you take that to God and cry out to him, you are bringing your face before the Lord. And the basis for our ability to do that, which we'll talk more in a few moments, really is the fact that we have the gospel, that, that Christ has interceded, that we now have access into the holy of holies, Hebrews tells us, and we can actually bring our hurts and our pains. But so often I think we don't do that because we think it's unbecoming. But what ends up happening? Well, those wounds stay unexposed and they come out somewhere else, Right? This, so let's look now at the speech then. If we can get that back, that's the, that's the basis of this psalm. Let's move into what would it look like, the speech of longing? Because the speech that this psalmist uses is something we should start trying to emulate. And first of all, he names, the psalmist is naming the problems, right? If you just kind of quickly overview the psalm, he's uh, thirsting for God. Uh, we're told that he has been separated, Right? Uh, people are chastising him in verse 3. Where is your God? That's repeated again in verse 10. Someone's seemingly chastising him that his faith isn't enough. He talks about his longing for the past. You know, used to we worshiped and I led a procession. He talks about uh, the, the, the downcast nature of his soul and the turmoil within. And so what you find is he's actually naming the problem. That's step one. I think so often we don't even do that. We feel 
but we don't take the time to go, what am I upset about? Where am I hurting? And I would say it's precisely in my relationship with God where I'm free to explore that, even if it feels shameful. Because sometimes it feels petty. Oh, it's petty. Or, oh, it's, maybe it's my sin, and I don't want to even talk about it to God. But I think the first step would be to be invited in to name the things you struggle with, with the goal of finding how they tie to your deepest longings. An example, if someone snubs me and it hurts my heart and I get mad, maybe I don't just go complain to God that person snubbed me. Maybe I go to God and say, why am I so hurt that that person did that? And maybe I, I walk through it because when I am snubbed, I feel unimportant. And I can just trace that in. When I feel unimportant, I wonder if I've been abandoned. And when I wonder if I've been abandoned, I don't know that you love me, oh God. So you can actually trace your hurts to the core longing for God. So you name it. Now, how did we name it? Second thought would be you do it with your emotions, right? One of the most fascinating, this is not a very, this is not like a left-brained clinical psalm. It's, it's very expressive. And so you have the emotions, the emotions of longing, of panting. In verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night. So there's weeping. And he's saying that. He's not just, he's not like wiping the tears and going, time to go pray, pretend everything's fine. He's expressing the tears to the Lord. In verse 4, I pour out my soul. In verse 4, again, and I used to, uh, I used to shout with praise. I used to, I used to um, lead a procession with songs of praise. There's emotion all through this um, psalm. How are you with experiencing and expressing your emotion? Would it be fair to say we live in a Christian world that frowns on emotion? Yet the word emotion is like the word weather. We use it incorrectly. Um, is there going to be weather today? Have you ever said that to somebody? Well, yeah, there's weather every day. It just may not be the violent kind. Emotion is, well, I could be emotion and not say a word. That's emotion. I'm frozen. That's an emotion. I'm expressive. That's another emotion. So learning to be okay and even bless our emotions is what the psalmist is calling us to do. And so as we speak to God, we pour forth our speech to him, we're not only naming and finding the longings of our heart, but we're using our emotions to get there. Be honest with these things. Now, it's interesting. This would be a a little bit of a comparison like... um, People who come to church and don't move, and they say, I just, I'm uncomfortable. And then you watch that same person at a, at a basketball or a football game, and they're like, yeah. You know, you're like, wait a minute, you do move, right? Uh, so shame on us for not cheering at, this, at the church. No. The point is, I experience my, I talk to this person about my struggles, and I'm super expressive, and I'm texting emotion. And I come to God, and it's just like, dear God, forgive me the way that I have sinned against you. And it's kind of like, wait a minute, what's going on? What if that's the real me? And God wants me to be me when I'm praying to him. And so we not only name it, but we reveal our emotions. And thirdly, we see this vivid imagery. I think it's very helpful. Uh, Some people have even said, maybe you should write your own psalm or take Psalm 42 and insert your story into it and write it. But when you do that, you're going to begin to look at the vivid imagery to really clarify what, what's going on in your heart. So this deer panting. Now, I have never seen that. So for me, that doesn't quite, have you all ever seen a deer? I've seen 
deers that have been hit on roads, you know, or running down the, you know, jumping fences, but find an image that makes sense to you. Like, for the psalmist, that made total sense. As a, as a teenager longs for the latest iOS, so my soul longs for you, oh God. Find your image and be vivid with it, right? Um, my tears have been my food. That's a little bit hyperbole. I doubt they were literally eating their tears. Yes, they seeped into the mouth and it sprang forth into a poetic expression, but, but just the, 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 even the um, hyperbole is there a little bit, overstating things. Also, he gets into the geography. Um, I think of the land of Jordan. Now, he's far away. He's far removed. They've been taken away, so he's remembering the Jordan River. He's remembering the, the, the largest mountain, Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Mizar is either the smallest mountain in that range or it's a made-up one. It's uh, actually one where they would say this is an insignificant mountain. So the thought of the contrast between a lower hill and a magnificent mountain called Mount Mizar, waterfalls, and just this expressive imagery that really do bring out your whole person when you're engaging God. I would say that if we would begin to do these things... We would be bringing our faces before the Lord more, more fully than often we do. The last thing before we hit into how we do it is memory. We're going to really focus next week. Psalm 77 is a beautiful, somewhat shorter psalm where the psalmist just says, look, I can't find any comfort, so what I'm going to do is just remember. And he just names a few of the memories of, of the biblical story. But here the writer is telling us a few memories. One, he's remembering, he says, right, if you look at verse four, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So as he's pouring out his soul to the Lord, he's also using his memory, and he's remembering a, a high point of his life. Like, I remember when we would, I would lead the sacred throng. I remember when I would, I would take the procession and we would praise in God. And so it's helpful when we pray to remember to remember well. I one time heard a, um, I might talk about this again next week, but we, um, Emily and I took marriage and family counseling, and Dr. Zink was talking about marriages that are struggling, and he's a counselor, and so he would say, look, we sit down, and often you would hear the couple say, you know what, I don't think we ever really were in love. And, you know, it's possible, but he kind of didn't see that to be true, so one of the things he would do is say, well, let's go back to how you met. Well, and then, you know, one of the two start talking about how they met. And pretty soon, you remember when we, and, and they start talking. And, and not long into the telling that story, it's like they can't help but remember. We actually, we actually kind of did like each other. Remember? You know, like, and it just, the point being, we can, our memory often follows our feelings. And so if right now that couple's not doing well, they will change their memory. We all do this. And so one of the, it's a beautiful thought. Let's go back to a place where I look and go, man, things were well. And let's just celebrate that as I'm praying to God. I remember, Lord, when I was at that camp. Or I remember, Lord, when I was at that, you know, what was the high point? And, and praise God in that time. It begins to stir your emotions. It begins to help you remember that God is good and loves you. But we don't just remember the past. As I've mentioned from here before, uh, we remember the future. That may be a strange thought, but just, re- just to kind of remind you of the metaphysical reality that the future does not yet exist. 
Yet if I said, where are you going to lunch? And you said, well, we're going to go to Fuzzy's. You're going to feel as if it's a real place, aren't you? Based on your memory. What if it had just been torn down, like in the last 30 minutes? You don't know, but you feel like it's real. Okay, a little bit metaphysical. Just follow me. We are, by faith, read the Bible, and we believe things about our future. By faith. And so twice in the psalm, he says, hope in God, for I shall again, future tense, praise him, my salvation, present tense, and my God. And at the very end, he does it again. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. Remember God. You will again praise him. And by faith, I'm, I'm claiming the fact that God is my salvation and my God. And by the way, uh, some of these mentions of God are the face of God. And so the, the psalmist is, part of the language he's moving to God with is he's saying, I believe in you. I believe you are real. I believe these truths to be real. So in all of this expression, what are we doing? This leads us to our final thoughts of how to speak this longing to our lives. And the answer is what we are doing is like the psalmist, we're both speaking to God, right? That's how it begins. My soul pants for you, oh God. So he's talking to God. Uh, These things I remember as I pour out my soul. So again, talking to God. But then we notice in two places that he's talking to God his own soul. In verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's talking to himself. It's not just some pop psychology like self-talk. Who's all tried self-talk, right? The Bible teaches self-talk. Who knew? And then in chapter, uh, Psalm 43, which many consider to be a continuation of Psalm 42, it's only five verses long, but it's last verse. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a, a book I highly recommend called Spiritual Depression. If you are someone or you have a loved one who's ever wrestled with depression, this really is a good book. I don't want to sit here and say it's the cure for depression, um, the spirit, the Lord can c- cure you. We need all the helps of medical field. But, but this is a great book. It's a series of sermons Martin Lloyd-Jones did. And um, he, uh, in it, he highlights the very first sermon is this psalm. And he spends the, almost the entire time saying, like, we are depressed because we let our own lives, like, run amok and not speak to us. And he, finally he says, is it strange that I'm asking you to talk to yourself? And here's this quote. He says, if you aren't speaking to your soul, your soul will be speaking to you. Now hear this next sentence. Do you realize that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Wow. We are a culture, a world who highly values the flitting, the flighty thoughts that cross our brains as if they are absolute gold while ignoring the speech of God that we are told to take in and speak to ourselves. Uh, As you know, one of my spiritual heroes, Jack Miller, uh, he often would say, preach the gospel to yourself first. What does that mean, preach the gospel? It means take your soul in hand and say, why are you cast down? Now, first, again, I'm naming that I'm down, I'm aware of it, but I'm going to ask it. 
I'm going to talk to my soul. I'm going to speak to it. How do we do that? What, where, what's, the, what's the power source behind this? It can only happen if you can hold death and resurrection together. There's a word in, in, in sort of counseling circles called ambivalence. If we've ever met before, I usually throw that word out in the first meeting or two. And the reason it's such an important word is we don't like that feeling. But the idea behind ambivalence in a clinical sense is that we will have two seemingly contradictory thoughts and we will feel extremely strong about both. A, a silly example might be, I really want to go to vacation in the mountains, but I really want to go to vacation at the ocean. Now, it's a really good example. You're like, who cares? Just pick one. But when you wrestle with two things and you feel extreme about both, uh, it's, it's a very challenging thing. Where it plays into counseling is in abuse situations because often an abused person is conflicted with, on the one hand, this is horrible, this is traumatic, this is wrong. And on the other hand, I mean, I don't know, did I, was I involved? And, and so they struggle because there's these two conflicting things. And so the counselor comes along and says, listen, you have to be able to understand you can hold both. Now, where is that in our scripture, right? Well, Fascinatingly, the psalmist says this in verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. By the way, again, a plug for Jason this Wednesday. I think we're still doing the singing. All through the psalms, you put a new song in my heart. The idea of music as something that drives us in our soul, even if it's metaphorical here. Uh, he puts a new song in me, a prayer to the God of my life. Is there anything in that that sounds negative? No, it's beautiful. Next verse. I say to God, my rock. Why do you say to God, your rock? This is amazing. Tell me what you say to God, your rock. Why have you forgotten me? When's the last time you've prayed that? Oh, God of my salvation, where have you been? Now, why can the psalmist do that? Because it's, it's the reality of the valley. It's true. It's where you are. And to act like you're not there is peace. Peace when there is no peace. And so spiritual maturity is actually being able to say, while I believe in the resurrection, while my hope is in the resurrection, there is death. And I feel it. Jesus in the New Testament, we talk about this almost every other sermon, when he raises Lazarus, like, you want to say, don't you know what you're going to do? And yet, even my, my, one of, like, Grayson loves it, his favorite verse, the shortest verse, Jesus wept. What is he weeping over? You're going to raise Lazarus. Come on, Jesus. Well, it's a picture, by the way, of Jesus entering Jerusalem for the last time and himself going to a grave, knowing he's going to be resurrected. But he was deeply sorrowful. So Dan Allender says this. I know it's twice I'm going to quote him. If you are able to hold the reality of both death and resurrection in your own story, you are one of the most powerful people in your community. Why? Because most of us are escape artists. The second someone tells you a problem, what do we offer them? Escape. You'll be fine. It'll get better. I promise. Escape. Pull them out. And that's what we do with our own soul. So what do we do? We, we lament, we cry to people, and we go to God and we, we pray fake prayers. And he's yawning. 
oh, God, you're amazing. But wait a minute, I'm not telling you that I'm, I'm breaking down inside. I'm struggling. I need to bring that to you. I want my tears to be my food. And the psalmist is teaching that. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, but embodying that. It, it was his actual cry to God at that moment. And we are set free to be honest with our struggles. If you need any more convincing, because I know a lot of you are like, I'm still not with you. If you were here on Wednesday night, I challenged you guys. If you weren't here, I still challenge you to read. Uh, I thought I said longer, but someone told me I said for the week, so now you're way behind. Um, Romans 7 and 8. And really, not that I don't mind, I don't mind you reading all of it, but where I would pick up is verse 13 of 7 and then end at verse 17 of 8. Not because it doesn't matter, but because we start with what's realistic. And then for those of you that are like achievers, you can spread out. Heck, read the whole letter to Romans. Some of you can just read all of Paul. One of you, it's going to be AJ, reads the whole New Testament this week. Just do it, man. I challenge you. It's a challenge. Sorry. He's like, now I'm in. We'll talk. Um, I love Romans 8 because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes forward to explain there is this law of sin and death. And he doesn't mean uh, all the horrible things that we struggle with, though it's included. But he actually means the fact that most of us want to be so good so we don't really need Jesus. I mean, that's really the motive. Like, if we want to be so good that we don't need Jesus. In fact, he says as much in verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So when I'm set on the flesh, the law of the sin and flesh, it's me going, I'll do these 10 things, these 30 things, whatever my list is, to avoid going to the cross and having to need God and having to need rescue. And so when we live in the spirit, we're set free from the law of sin and death. We are no longer debtors to the flesh, but we're debtors of the spirit. And in, a little bit later in 8, it says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And he goes on to say, we cry, Abba, Father. And the Holy Spirit himself bears witness with my spirit that we are children of God. This is your new reality. So what do you do? You've been rescued. You've been set free. The, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of his spirit, you're adopted in Christ. This is your new reality. Where is death and resurrection in that? Why is it not just all resurrection? Why don't we just go around saying, now that we live in the New Testament era, we just praise God and sing and we never mention problems? Well, the very last verse of that section I mentioned, verse 17, if you're, heir, if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. When you became a Christian, you weren't invited into a life of no struggle you're actually invited into a life of supreme struggle. In Philippians, Paul says, have this mind among you. And he's wanting everyone to get along. He could have just said, be nice, like Jesus was nice. But he doesn't. He said, Jesus, who was God, came to earth and died on a cross. Have that mindset among you. We go into battle. We go into the problems. Why? Because we are set free. The church, historically, individually and corporately, goes into the hard places, and it has to be reflected 
in our own prayer life. And so we come to Psalm 42, and we don't avoid and go under and around. We bring our problems straight out to the Lord, even if those problems are completely because of our own sin, then all the more bring them to the Lord. Lord, change my heart, change my affections, change my hurting, give me a desire to love my enemy, change who I am. Just bring those things to him. The book, Going on a Bear Hunt, ends with this family getting to the cave and apparently they get in and they see the eyes of the bear. They, they literally like poke the bear, but not literally, figuratively poke the bear. I use the word literally doubly wrong. And the bear comes out, and they run. And it's a great book. I'm going to spoil the ending, but these are the kind of books you reread anyway. And they run back through all those little places, the, the, through the snowstorm and the forest. And they come into their house, and they go upstairs, and they forgot to lock the door. The bear's coming. So they run down the stairs, and they lock the door, and they bolt it, and they run up, and that bear's at the door. And you're like, thank you that the bear didn't get in. And then they run upstairs, and they get in their bed, and they cuddle up together. And you start to kind of realize, like, maybe it's all imaginative. I don't know. But the last scene is the best scene. It's the picture of the bear walking away, sad. And you kind of go, wait a minute. Maybe it's a good bear. And please don't call the presbytery on me, but God's not a bear. But if you want God, you've got to go through the valley to get to him. And the truth is, most of us don't want what we're going to find because he's going to come and we would run when in reality what he would want is to embrace. So by going through the valleys of your life, you come face to face, not with a bear, but with a God who is all loving and all healing and longs to nurture and heal you and bring you through that valley with him. Let's pray. Spirit, we need you because we run from you. We are afraid of you. We are afraid of righteousness. We are afraid of so many things, not because they're not glorious, but because we secretly wonder if we can do them. And yet that's the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit is you have already done them. You have already achieved everything. And you have credited us with that righteousness. And so, holy God, I pray that in the valley, which we all live in, at various times and in various ways, when it seems harder or, or better, help us to be people who can cry out with the psalmist that our hearts long for you. And Lord, if that is not the truth right now, if we're not there, teach us to read that psalm and pray it. Lord, make my heart to thirst for you. Lord, will you teach my stony heart to cry out to you, to want to be with you? Will you use memory of the, of the, of the high points where you've shown yourself to me? Will you use memory of the future salvation we already know is true? Will you use the vivid imagery of our emotions and our pain? Lord, teach us to be people who engage you, that we would then engage each other. Lord, teach us to bring our face before you, our whole self. In your name we pray. Amen.